Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Uh, and, do you know, every time I come here, I always say I love it, but it's, it's, uh, it's really genuinely humbling, you know. I mean, <laughs> tempt me, tempt me with an offer. I'm cheap. But it's, uh, it is genuine. I want to say that it's genuinely humbling when you, when you come here, not just because of the vibrancy and the atmosphere. I mean, I go to a few prayer days, you know, I speak at a few prayer days. Some of them are a little bit deadly. But it's always a bit pumping here. But not only that, it's not just rhetoric. That's what I love about coming here, because I actually feel refueled as well, even just being here for the last hour and hearing some of those stories. That is a remarkable work of grace that just seems to be ongoing. I mean, I was just looking at the timeline, probably when I should have been praying for someone, but I was looking at the timeline from 1987. That's, what is that, 28 years? 28 years of persistent gritty transformation in people's lives. I mean, that, yeah, that is, that is a phenomenal thing. And I wasn't going to talk about that particularly, but, do you know, constantly at the moment, um, this is a little aside, constantly at the moment I'm thinking around the Ephesians 4, I think it's Ephesians 4, 20, where it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And um, I literally, I'm not planning on going into this. It's a little aside as I sit in there. The Holy Spirit is very gentle. And I'm saying this as a, as a bloke who's built like a fridge with a one-foot accent. But he's tender and gentle. And, and the potential to grieve the Spirit of God is, it's so easy. But what you have is so precious. You, you, you know, you drive down the Harper Lane and you, I feel it as I'm driving down the road. I mean, it, it's a weird feeling. It's like there's something special happening i know it's not just here the work is global now but i think it's a precious thing and sometimes we just need to remember that don't we it's so easy to grieve the spirit of the lord and he flutters away from us and we don't even realize it happened like when that happened to samson didn't it he went into a punch-up with the philistines but the spirit of the lord had left him and he got a kick in and it says that he said the spirit had left him and he didn't even know he just sort of gently flutters away. But what you have is extremely uh, precious, and I always find it very, very deeply humbling. Uh, not only just to be asked to come and speak to you, but just to be here. It's a humbling thing, and please keep hold of that depth of humility and, you know, marvelling, constantly marvelling at the grace of God because that will carry you through into the next season of punch-ups, which I've no doubt around the corner more on that in just a minute. Anyway, um, this may come as... Something is a shock to those of you who are now looking at me, but in, in six days' time, I'm running my third marathon. Now, I know I look like I'm built for darts and not, or lifting heavy things. And I, it's a weird thing. Uh, a few years ago, I mean, I'm 43, built like a fridge, trying to run a marathon. I'm, I did the London Marathon I think it was five years ago. Then two years ago, I accidentally got entered to the Snowdonia Marathon, which is meant to be the toughest one in Europe. And it was. It was really hard. It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible. And now I'm doing one in the Peak District. 
I was doing a little bit of training the other day and I got I found myself hysterically laughing at myself so much I was crying with laughter and the girls were just my daughters were looking at me laughing as well, thinking, What are you doing? Uh, about three years ago, I cycled over the Alps. That was an accident. I'd actually cycled from Landsend to John O'Groats in 2007. And I was in Kendall in a Lake District having a pork pie and a cup of tea. <laughs> having a rest. I did the whole of Landsend and John O'Groats on scotch eggs and pork pies. <laughs> and uh, I was in the pub having this pork pie. And one of my mates went, it was horrible weather. It's July 2007 when the UK flooded really badly. And that's when we did it. And um, he said, oh, let's do something better than this next year. He said, why don't we cycle to the south of France? And I was so exhausted and sort of slightly delirious. I said, all right, mate. <laughs> and, um, and, and for those of you who understand this, um, when you, I think when you're a bloke and you shake hands with another bloke, it's like you don't need to sign anything. That's your, you, put, you sign a contract. But your word is your bond. I shook hands on it. So we shook hands on it in the pub, finished me pork pie, got back on my bike. I oh, went terrible. It was like 120 miles a day. Longest day was 167 miles because we wanted to do the hilliest route possible. <laughs> so, stupid, isn't it? Cycling down the road, and he went, it's going to be a bit tough, isn't it? I said, what's that? He went, cycling over the Alps. I went, what are you talking about? We're going to the south of France. He said, the Alps are in the way. I said, well, you never told me that when you shook hands, did you? So we ended up doing 1,000 miles and 92,000 feet of climbing in eight and a half days. No, it was terrible. I mean, don't be amazed. I mean, I don't know how I did it. And then, I, then I agreed to cycle the whole coast of Italy for Nice to Naples. And you think, what's he talking about this for? I'm not trying to look like a hero. I mean, it's ridiculous. It just hurts. On one training ride up a hill, I thought I was doing really well. And a butterfly went past me. <laughs> I'm not joking. I thought I was doing really well. And this butterfly pulled up level with me, spun around a bit and went off. That's how painful it is. When I first started doing the marathon training this time, because I got back into my weightlifting, when I started running this time, I couldn't run up the road. Last training one I did, you have to do like a 20-mile training one. You're sort of doing 40, 50 miles a week, you know, to, to get ready for it. And I learned a bit through that, funny enough. I mean, you learn a lot about life when you're just running down the Derby Road for 10 miles and back, because I can't navigate. So there's a road in Ches Vegas that goes out for 10 miles. It goes up and down, up and down for 10 miles. So I just get on that because otherwise I get lost and ended up doing too many miles. But it's a funny thing when you're by yourself, about three and a half, four hours, with no support, little bottle of water, some little gels tucked in your pocket, and you just go running. And at first it really hurts. But then you realise it still hurts the same, but you can keep taking the pain for a little bit longer. And then you realise that you can go a little bit further but it still hurts. It's the same. It hurts the same. And then your brain starts changing. It's weird. Like when I first started running again, like you do a mile in however long it is. I mean, my marathon pace for this is going to be like four hours, 45. So let's say you do like an 11-minute mile if you're doing like 25 miles or whatever. Just slow. I'll just plod it. But first, that 11 minutes, that seems like ages. 
And then your brain adapts. And suddenly you think, oh, I've done three miles, and I didn't realize I'd done that. They just start ticking past. And then you start thinking, oh, I've run past that bit of dirt there. I'm never going to run past that again. It's just I'm leaving it behind. And I've got my head down, and I'm running, and I'm running, and I'm running, and I, I keep going. And then something happens to your physiology. It's weird. Like, you hit this point in your training when you suddenly realize that you are actually running. Like, and, and, and you're going faster. I, I, this seems like not amazing to you, but to me it is, because I couldn't run. So I go out on like an eight-mile run, and halfway through I'm thinking, I could actually go faster, and I can think about other things other than survival. Because <laughs> your, your body's changing too. And it has this massive effect on you. And now I'm just going to turn up on Sunday and I'm going to plot out the, the marathon and I'm running my youth group afterwards and stuff like that. And I, I think I'll just go and plot it out. And it'll be fine, hopefully. But here's the thing. It's taught me, it's a, it's a reminder that life and ministry and this is not a sprint. It is a massive, massive, long-term job, like big time. And the more you discipline yourself and you get ready for the long haul and you don't just focus on the immediate thing that's going to give you the next buzz, the, the more you do that, the, the stamina grows and you can take the tough bits and, you man, there's some big hills in the Peak District. And you see a big hill in front of you. And do you know what I think now? Partly I enjoy it. Nice big hill. Sweat a bit on that one. That's going to hurt. Whereas before it'd be like fear. But now I'm thinking, just dial back the pace a little bit. I'm going to plot up it, and I'm going to enjoy the view at the top. I'm going to come down the other side. Then there'll be another one. So I'll go back up it because I only go one way up, one way back. I'll go back up the other one, enjoy the view the other way, and I'll come down the other side. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And then you get these moments of weird exhilaration. I think it's endorphins chemically. But you have these moments where you just, I feel alive. I've got this little route now where I, I go one direction, one way. It takes me along the Chesterfield Canal. It's actually quite nice. And, you know, I look at the trees and I look at the little ducks and everything. I'm just plodding past and I feel alive. There's something about adjusting for the long haul. It's so important. And that's true in, I think, not just marathon running, but life and ministry and relationships and being entrepreneurial and planning big events and just getting alongside people. I mean, some of you here have come out of very broken backgrounds and some of you are getting alongside people with very broken backgrounds. And what I learned over 20 years now trying to get alongside some of the people that life has really beaten up on is that you have to love them. And love people and love people and love people and they pull away from you and hurt your back sometimes and you just keep loving them and loving them and loving them and eventually a work of grace happens and they pull through and it's all good and then sometimes people crash again and what do you do? You love them and you love them and you love them. You go up the hill with them again, you enjoy the view and come down the other side and it's a marathon. And then you look back after 28 years you think, flip, there are some hills there. But look where we are now. A few years ago, um, 
actually a number of years ago now, my wife used to be a civil servant and she was a PA in the civil service and her boss uh, was working in Africa in the overseas development stuff, Department for International Development. And um, he was sent home, she had a sore throat and uh, but it's a serious sore throat. He had a, a lump in his throat the size of a conker. So um, a word came to us. I was now doing some ministry stuff. I'd left my banking career by this time, and I was doing some ministry stuff. Word came to us. He had an extremely aggressive and rare form of throat cancer, and they'd given him 12 weeks to live. And this guy, he weren't a Christian. He was actually raised in the Plymouth Brethren, uh, very strict. I was actually converted in the Brethren Chapel. It was a very closed group. And he'd rejected it violently, violent atheist. And, and he's an academic guy. He's a Cambridge scholar. And he'd, he'd reason that there's no God angrily. Now he's got cancer. So I'd, I sent message back via Karen that I'd love to pray for him. Now, when you've been told you've only got a few months to live, your atheism might get put on a shelf somewhat. You try anything, wouldn't you? So word comes back that he'd be up for a bit of prayer. So me and Karen drove to see him. We were lived in Essex and we went to Herniel in the car. About an hour and a half, two hours through the traffic. And um, he had swollen up to he was on steroids. He had a tracheotomy in his throat. He's been fed through a tube into his stomach. And I prayed for him. We couldn't talk. We had to write notes down to each other. I'd speak, he'd write a note and this sort of stuff. And I prayed for him. It was the weirdest thing. As I laid hands on him and started to pray, he's, you know these like vibration plate exercise machines you can get that make you do all that? don't think they do anything, actually. I think you just got to go running, to be honest with you. But they make you do all that. He started vibrating on the plate, like on the plate. Really weird. So I, and it went on and on and on. And he's pouring me sweat as well. So I thought, he's been healed. He's been healed. So I said to him at the end, I thought he'd start speaking. I went, how you doing, Graham? <laughs> and he just wrote a note down. He went, don't know, been shaking a lot, but I uh, still think I've got a lump in my throat on the thing. So it's really weird. What's happening? So to cut a very long story short, I would say this differently now because my faith is in a different place. But what I said to him was, if you are up for it, I will come Every week from Billericay, where I lived, I will come every week and pray for you until you are either healed or die. <laughs> now, I wouldn't say that now, but that's what I said then. And he said, he wrote down on his thing, gotcha, okay. So I cleared my diary. Now, understand, this is a four-hour round trip through the traffic in London. Every single week, I would go and lay hands on him and pray for him. Every week. Sometimes, I only had 10 minutes. So I'd go there, the traffic would be terrible. I'd pray for him. He'd shake about a bit. It'd happen every time. He'd do a bit, little bit of shaking, sweat a bit. I'd say, see you later, Graham, and go. Some weeks, I had time to hang out. And I actually learned how to lip read, so be warned. But I actually learned how to lip read because he would mouth his... And we started talking about everything from... He was an economics specialist. So I learned loads. And we talked about Europe and economics and religion and faith. And eventually, after 12 weeks, he gave his life to Jesus, which is brilliant. Well, that's brilliant, isn't it? So that's great. 
but he's still, he's still going to die. Then, after about 20 weeks, I'm still going backwards and forwards to Hanil. 20 weeks. Still going backwards and forwards. The Macmillan nurse says to him, basically in a nutshell, you should be dead. The lump had grown massively in the preceding time. You should be dead, but you're not. You need to get a second opinion because you've been discharged effectively. They're waiting for him to die. He's on palliative care. For the Macmillan nurses and whatever it works. Now, a little bit of technical backstory. The tumour had been resting on his voice box. So they said to him, we could chop out your voice box and if we do that, you might get an extra six months. To which his reply was, I'll die in one piece, thank you very much. And you can understand that. I just want to die, let me die. He goes back for the second opinion and they, they scan him for a couple of days in St. Thomas's Hospital in London. At the end of these results, it turns out that the tumour has mysteriously moved. It has detached itself from his voice box and it is now resting loose in his throat. And there is no trace of cancer in any lymph node or anything. He's basically got a ball of cancer stuff in his neck. So they said to him, we can cut you open and pull it out. And we, you may be cured. To which he replies, no thank you, I want my mate to keep praying for me instead. <laughs> to which my reply was, don't be a nutter. <laughs> Have the operation. And he did. He had the operation and they pulled the tumour out of his throat. And he was healed. And he actually says on his notes, cured. When I went to visit him in the hospital after the operation, and I walked in through his hospital, he was in his own room, and I walked in, I burst into tears when I looked at him. I, I just sobbed my heart out because we'd been on a bit of a journey together. But only that, the Lord spoke to me. And I don't know this a lot, but he simply spoke to me and said, tell him he was Nebuchadnezzar. I gave him a lot and he was proud. And I took him down to nothing. And now I'm going to give him back more. So I said that to him and I went, I don't know what it's going to look like, but maybe you're going to get promoted or something when you go back to work. And, and then, he, and then um, he, because he was still writing down that point, he said, I've also, because of the radiotherapy, I'm, I'm sterile kind of kids, you know. So I'd love to have children. So he prayed for that. And he's now got twins. And uh, which is amazing, isn't it? And, he's, and he, he works. He's worked all over the world. And he worked for like the World Bank. And he would be directing economic policy and writing speeches for politicians. He'd lace it with kingdom principles and stuff. Now, I learned something through that as well. There's a theme here, hopefully. I learned something through that. That was 20 weeks. I mean, often we pray for someone or a situation and we think, I prayed for it. You know, if it's like Ryan I Bonky or something, someone's arm will grow back. When I do it, it takes 20 weeks and then it might be a bad back gets better. 
But you, sometimes you've got you to just get that grit inside you and you've got to punch through, haven't you? And that is interesting because I'm sitting at the back having me subway, <laughs> listening to some of the people speaking. They're like, oh, it's been a tough 18 months, but then we got this facility. And it was 28 years of the message and now you're here. And we had a tough year, but we, we pressed through that. That, everyone, is life. That is ministry. That, I mean, we, we are in danger if we, if we try to ride on the crest of a tidal wave all the time. The tidal wave moments come, but this nation will change and the cities will change when a bunch of radical people say, punch me in the stomach as many times as you want, I'm going to keep coming back. It's all right. You know, I'll take the rough times, I'll take the tough times, and I throw a big hill in front of me because I'll plod up it. It might take me a month, but I'll get to the top in the end, stuff you. Because what the enemy likes to do is just to pull the rug out from under your feet and discourage you and disappoint you and frustrate you. But you have to learn to make the frustrations your friend and the, the discouragements opportunities and look behind that and think, if I'm being discouraged, it must be because there's some glory at the other side of it. It's an old cliche, isn't it? But the darkest hour is always before the dawn. It always is. It's an old cliche, but it's so true. I could tell you story after story of breakthrough moments that that came right at the time when I was on my knees and I was frustrated. So I'm going to read you this, some of my favorite verses in Scripture, which I love and I've spoken about many times. But there was obviously the Holy Spirit wants to embed something because some of the testimonies that are coming out, I just want to read this through you. This is in... uh, Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 23 and um, it's like David's last words get spoken and then it goes into a little bit of a description of David's SAS troopers, his mighty men and I just want to draw out a couple of principles from it and then maybe we'll pray together. This is verse 8, these are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachmanite who was chief of the three. This is good uh, toddler, quiet time reading stuff. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. You could preach this on that, couldn't you? Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamin for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shemar, son of Agi, the Hararite. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there is a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shemar took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in a stronghold, and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, and David longed for water. 
and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. That's like your leader dropping major hints. Oh, oh, I'm so thirsty. If only someone would get me a badoir. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. You'd be right miffed off, wouldn't you? I'm just going to break through enemy lines to get you a tango. And then when you get back, I'm just going to pour it out. Thanks anyway. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David wouldn't drink it. Such are the exploits of the three, the mighty warriors. And then it goes on to talk about a whole bunch of other people who killed lions and stuff just because they could and things like that. I don't really go into any detail about why. It's true. Just says, look, where is it? Here we go. Look at this. He struck uh, Benaniah, son of Joadah, a valiant warrior from Kabzil, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's what it says. It's like, then I'm going to kill a lion. Because I can. That's just what I do. So deal with it. And it's going to be written in scripture forever. Everyone will read about my lion. How I killed it. It's not Cecil. Don't worry. It's all right. It's in scripture. How to lose everyone in the room. So what do we learn from this remarkable passage? about following Jesus now in the 21st century. What does it, what does it mean? Uh, well, sometimes, quite simply, there's a couple of points. Sometimes, quite simply, you have to make a decision to freeze your hand to the sword. You know, sometimes when everything's screaming at you to run, you mustn't. I mean, obviously, if wise people around you are saying, what you are doing is really not a good idea, I mean walking without a safety rope and training for it across the Grand Canyon. I don't think you're cut out for it. Don't do it. Sometimes you've got to listen. It might not be a prophetic thing that you do a prophetic dance on a tightrope walk across the Grand Canyon. Sometimes there's wisdom. But many times I've found in ministry, when the objective is noble and God-breathed and the Spirit's behind it, everything will be thrown at you to make you quit. And the enemy knows your quit button he knows how to attack you individually for some people it'll be overwhelming temptation for other people it'll be disappointment or he'll use things like friendly fire from within or your ego or money worries he will know what button to press but be assured of this if you determine to fight God's fight and you really determine to fight it the enemy will throw as much at you as possible. And we're not to be scared about it. We're meant to be aware of it. Because my fear is, someone, uh, we talked about plastic Christians. We can actually become plastic Christians very easily by dining out on rhetoric and experiences and thinking that is everything. And so when I don't feel good, God's not with me. No, no. When you feel bad, God is probably really with you because you're in the middle of a fight. And fights, by definition, hurt you. Marathons are painful. I'm not going to find 26.2 miles fun. I might after. I want to have me Ribena and a cupcake and celebrate. <laughs> but when I'm doing it, it's going to hurt. Isn't it? And all the training hurts. 
When you determine to do something for God, it's painful. And I may have told you this before, but I will tell you again. When I was first church planting, and I was a young man, I didn't understand this. I thought I'd quit my job in a bank, spend all my savings moving on to the council state, pump some money into a church plant to reach the poorest people I could find in Essex, and there would be a revival. Well, there wasn't. Not at first. 18 months and nothing had happened. No one had come to Christ. And I was doing everything. I was doing the street stuff. I was posting leaflets through people's doors. I used to print them all myself. Do everything. I mean, back in the day, I, I, I was trying to be creative and inventive. I cut out my own postcards. I put on them, what would Jesus say to David Beckham and put my mobile phone number on the bottom. That was, that was my strategy. Someone actually phoned me up and said, don't you think Jesus has got more important people to speak to than David Beckham? I went, what, like you? And he became one of our first members of a home group. So it did work. <laughs> but it was terrible, you know. We, I mean, we hardly saw anything happen. And it, and it broke me. I mean, some of you, you're, you're young and you're embarking out on this great sensational adventure of ministry. I'm telling you, in the early days for me, it, it broke me. It brought me to the edge of a breakdown in my mid-twenties. I'd, I'd given everything of myself. And I thought I was a tough guy. I really did. I thought I was strong. But man, did the enemy know how to press the buttons. I was married at 22. And um, I met my wife in church. I only went there because I fancied her. And then I getting saved, got married and all that. So that all worked out well. But I, I, um, I, I, I drove her away. We didn't split up or anything. But I used to walk in the house and I could see the, the, the hurt in her eyes. She didn't want to talk to me anymore. And I, was, I was annoying all my mates because I was so down. You know, it just brought me to the end of myself. I was exhausted and I started getting cold sweats and heart palpitations and all the rest of it. And I had everything totally out of balance. And everything in me wanting to quit. I wasn't being ungodly. I was just exhausted. It's exhausted. And, and all my church experiences had told me that I'd see the glory really quickly, but I hadn't. I felt like I was a failure and all this kind of stuff. And to cut a long story short, I had a little motorbike. And, and one morning I'd woken up with heart palpitations, cause I was stressed out. And I felt, uh, I felt this voice, inner voice. And I was a conservative evangelical at the time, so I didn't believe the Holy Spirit could speak today. And... Uh, at all really but I woke up with this little inner voice going the Battle of Britain starring Michael Caine which is a bit weird isn't it over and over and over again Battle of Britain starring Michael Caine I've often said it's funny how God speaks to you in your accent but it's just how it went Battle of Britain starring Michael Caine <laughs> so I got in a shower and it's still going on and we only, we only had about a tenner left in money you know we had no money it was unpaid for a couple of years you know and uh, I got on my motorbike and I drove from Billericay to Chelmsford, went into HMV and I went, hello mate, have you got a, is there a film called The Battle of Britain with Michael Caine in it? I went, yeah. She was like a little bit pre-internet, you know. So I went, yeah, yeah, there is. And it was video cassette. But that's a black plastic box with tape in it, he used to play, <laughs> play films. And uh, so I took that back home, it was £9.95. So I spent all our money and... Um, 20 years ago, went, went home, put the video on, and Karen walked in and said, what are you doing? So I'm watching the Battle of Britain, starring Michael Caine. <laughs> See, how much was that? I went, tenner. She just walked out and slammed the door. Well, that worked. Thank you, Lord. It's all going well so far. 
and then, and then, now what's the film? It's a 7 out of 10 film if you're on IMDb. It's a 7 out of 10. It's all right. It's a 7 out of 10. It's okay for its day. And, and at the end of it, all the, all the fighter pilots are up in the air. There was one day where the, where the Nazis threw everything at, at Britain. And all the planes are up in the air. And it says a scene in the control room when all the women officers, they're pushing model planes around on the map. And then the phone goes and the senior IF officer picks it up and he bases in a very clipped English accent, puts the phone down and he says, in a nutshell, everything's up in the air. If there's one more wave of attack, we're finished. If there's one more attack, we're finished. And I burst into tears. It was like, I thought, that's me. I was so on the edge. I thought, that's me. If you attack me one more time, if anything else goes wrong, I mean, I had some right stuff going off, you know, it's really painful. Best friends turn on me, people I was ministering with, people were falling out of each other, it was terrible. Wife not talking to me. And um, I thought, that's it, you know. And then it moved to another scene. And this time, all the pilots, the Hurricane and Spitfire pilots, are sitting in their deck chairs with their feet up, doing the crossword and playing a game of chess, having a cup of tea. And the victory music starts up. Da, 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 like that, you know, like big orchestral music. And no one says we've won, but there's this feeling that they held out and they held out and they held out and they got a right old kick in. But they held out until the last moment and Hitler changed his plan and he didn't proceed with the planned invasion because they held the line. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. Had it changed me theology? Heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and he said, Son, you held the line. Now see what I do. And I'm telling you this. I mean, it still puts a shiver down my spine. Within six months of that day, we had a converted household on every single road of the estate. And I didn't do anything different. I mean, it was astonishing. People would walk past our house and knock on the door and say, I keep coming past your house, and every time I come past your house, I cry. I'm f- what is it you're doing? You're like a vicar, aren't you? We'd lead them to Christ. We had, we had addicts like come around our house and they'd be set free from addiction and come to Christ. And the debt collector doing illegal loan shark and gave up his business. And his sister became a lollipop lady on the estate. And all this, it was weird. We just started seeing glory and grace and stuff. But we, you know, we went into punch-ups after that. I mean, the guy who took on the congregation after me committed adultery and tried to ship, almost shipwreck the whole thing. So we went into hill climbs and battles and stuff. It wasn't all over then, but man, was that a lesson. And my wife, she, it was amazing. Her best friend, is still best friends to this day, her best friend Claire got in touch and said, I really need something to pray for me. I want to know more about, I want to know God more. She's a Christian, but like conservative evangelical. I was. She said, I know there's more for me. There's more of the spirit for me. And she said, I'd like Carl to pray for me. And Karen actually said to her, because I heard it, well, it's not all that, but you can have a go. So she came, she came round, and I laid her hands on Claire's head with Karen standing next to her, and she went down like a sack of potatoes, fell back on the sofa, and Karen fell over as well. It's like, you know, two for the price of one kicking off. For what's happening? Now, I'm not used to this. It was, it was new to me 20 years ago. So they're both out, spark out on the sofa. So I'm just sort of standing there, thinking I can put a kettle on there, and I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Karen, put a kettle on, go back in the room. Karen opened her eyes and she looked at me right in the eyes. She said, 
She'll tell you this. She said, I hated you, but I, I love you so much all over again. I said, what's this happened? I thought, I don't know, it's just the result, isn't it? I mean, it's like, that's so good, isn't it? I mean, that's amazing. And, you know, 22 years on, just conspiring together for things of God and two older teenage daughters and a dog and a cat and a chicken died last week. But it's great, you know. We never went into those days again. Darkest hours before the dawn. And sometimes you just have to freeze your hand to the sword when you're praying for people, loving people, you're contending for a vision. And I am going to say this, I rarely do this at conferences when I'm speaking to a movement or a ministry, to one I hold in very high esteem. I would be very careful before the Lord when you say things. But I'm telling you, I, I felt, uh, I'll say to utmost you know, uh, humility, I felt there are some significant battles to come. The more you pursue the glory and the grace and the life transformations, there may well be some significant, significant pressure points over the next few years where the enemy will try to undermine, subvert, war against what he sees happening. I have no understanding of how that will come. But I know that there will be feelings of pressure. It might well be that you've won victories and battles of faith in money and people and stuff, but there will be other pressure points the enemy is not going to sit idly by, I felt the Spirit say to me, while you try to take more and more ground. And that means that word about unity, that was bang on the money. I mean, that was bang on the money. It really was. And next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Harorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there's a field for the lentils. Israel's troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. I don't think Shammah is a militant vegetarian. I don't think he had a lentil thing going on. My wife is a vegetarian, so I'm saying this in self-deprecation. I don't think he thought, lentils, can't touch my lentils. I don't think it was about that. If you read commentaries, they come out with all kinds of stuff about why Shamar chose the lentil field like it was an expensive crop and he needed to defend his lentils. I think all of that is rubbish. I think the lentils are arbitrary. I think what simply happened was this. Shamar happens to find himself in a field of lentils. It, just, that, it could have been anything. It just happened for all time it was going to be a field of lentils. And then he saw the enemy. And he thought, I'm not... Having it. It could have been a field of wheat. It could have been Brussels sprouts. But it was, it was almost like Monty Python. None shall pass. For those of you who watch that. You will not cross this line. I, Shamar, have drawn a line and you are not getting past. I think that is a much-needed character trait in ministries, corporately, and in individuals today. Draw your spiritual boundary lines of purity and rigidly hold to it. Do not grieve the spirit 
draw your line. And when you've run the victory for that line, step forward and advance and draw another line and hold that line. It could be anything. It could be individually, it could mean anything. There may be some of you here wrestling with things quietly that no one knows about, sin in the dark places, all that kind of stuff. Well, draw your line and fight for it. Because there's a corporate responsibility too. Now, when Achan sinned in Joshua's time, he sinned and touched stuff after a battle that he shouldn't have touched. The Lord said, do not touch plunder from the battle. And Achan did it. And do you know what happened? Read the story later in Joshua, in the Exodus. Uh, the, the, the blessing of God came off all the people. And, a, and the Israelites got a kick in. Because someone had committed an offense. Draw, draw the line. Hold the line. I had a, a mate in, uh, who was an elder of mine in a church I was leading a few years back called Alan. And Alan was a, a top gun exec in a global communications company. He's a, he's a top gun, global traveler, you know, switched on, loved Jesus, switched on. You know, he's the kind of guy who put thousands of pounds on his corporate credit cards. He's flying around the world and all this kind of stuff. He's a, you know, what I'm trying to say is he's a switched on guy. He's not, he's not an out there kind of like a bit, a bit weird, like a psycho prophet. He's... He's a stand-up, steady guy. He's a steady guy. Knocks at my door one evening, floods of tears. He said, Al, what's the matter? Can't speak. He's so overcome. Do you want a cup of tea? It's always the solution. Pastor, have a cup of tea. Go in and put the kettle on. Sit him down. I said, what's going on? He said, I submitted my expenses, thousands of pounds. He said, but they overpaid me by a couple of hundred quid. Now, to Alan on over six figures at that time, that's not a big deal. A couple hundred quid. He said, but I could have just pocketed it. He said, because no one would raise a question over a couple of hundred quid. It's almost like petty cash to him on a, a weekly basis. You know, it's nothing. He said, but I know I've got a, I've got a, a man of God, elder of the church, man of God, walking with Jesus. He said, but the temptation was so strong. He said, I had to lock myself in the toilet and I had to grit my teeth and pray that the temptation would pass. And then I went to finance and I got the 200 quid taken off. I said, well, that's brilliant. That's what you'd expect. It's a godly thing to do. It's normal. He said, it's not why I'm crying. I said, why are you crying? He said, because I got off the train half hour ago and I crossed over the first road, crossed over the second road, went to cross over the third road to get to my house and a cycle came around the corner. Then a red hot hatch followed the cycle, fast, too fast, hit the cyclist, not the cyclist off, it was deaf on the road. He said, but that's not why I'm crying. So he saw a bad accident. He went, yeah, but it's not why I'm crying. He said, why are you crying? Now, you're just going to have to bear with me on this. I'm just telling you exactly as he told me. He said, why are you crying? He said, because I actually instinctively screamed when I saw the accident. It was so shocking. I screamed, and I screamed, God, no. He said, and at that moment, I opened my eyes again. And the cycle came back round the corner, and the red hot hatch came back round the corner, and went round the cyclist. I said, "What are you saying?" He said, "I saw what I believe to be a fatal accident, and I screamed to God, and then the scene replayed, and it wasn't an accident." He said, "But that's not why I'm crying. <laughs> this is a stand-up guy. 
he's a top gun exec in a very well-known global corporation. I said, why are you crying? He said, because in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I said, what did he say, Alan? He said, the Spirit of the Lord said, Alan, if you honour me in the small things, I'll honour you in the big things. Where'd you go with that? Now, I haven't got, got catalogues of these stories, so I repeat them sometimes around the place. I can't tell them everywhere because people think you're a nutter. But that's as it happened. You have to draw your line and you have to hold to it. And you have to stick to it. To freeze your hand to the sword. You have to stand your ground. You need to learn from the people of the past, like, you know, Wilberforce, who spent his whole parliamentary career just flying over slavery, getting ridiculed on a daily basis. But just fought and fought and fought and fought. And it was only just before he died that the law started to change. Actually, it really all came to fruition after his death. 40 years. Moses, in Midian, 40 years, wandering in the desert, 40 years. Just hanging in there to the promises of God. Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, all that time waiting, holding the line, hands frozen to the sword. And even then at the end says, he's still pioneering, give me the mountain. I still want to charge a mountain. He's an old bloke. I still want to go and have a fight. Still going to charge up a mountain all that time there's Wesley thousands of sermons reckon he did 80,000 miles on his horse probably a few horses to be fair <laughs> thousands of sermons 65 miles a day on average never let go of a vision people like Carey pioneering missionaries went out to India with nothing. He was a cobbler. He used to repair people's shoes. Goes out to India. Took his coffin with him, by all accounts. Because he didn't think he'd make it back. Watched his son die. His wife went mad. He couldn't go on TripAdvisor and look up the best resorts in India. Or go to Google Earth and find out a safe place to be. He just went out to India because he went to take the gospel there. And it took him his life. It took him his life. Throws his hand to the sword and he drew a line in the sand or in his field of lentils. And he did it. He never quit. And then finally, we have this strange thing about water. And David dropping massive hints and then his men battling for enemy lines to bring in water. And then there's this mutual honour thing happening. We want to honour our leader. And then the leader says, but I want to honour my men. And I can't drink this water. I don't actually understand why he poured it away. I'd probably drink it and pour a little bit away if I was thirsty. But it's like this amazing thing about honour happening. And I just want to put this out there. These are slightly ill-formed thoughts at the moment. It's something I'm going to have to develop over time. But I'll tell you what I've noticed. You're not meant to build up to ministry times like this, but I'm going to just put it out there. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that. 
people are behaving very dishonourably. I mean, sometimes I don't even think people are Christians, the way they defame other people on social media. The way I see people talking about leadership. We're just, we're not good at it, you know. We're not good at understanding mutual honour. And that Romans 12 thing about outdo one another in giving honour to each other. I've got this suspicion that the world actually hates all that stuff that they see taking place. It leaves you feeling ugly inside. It sort of leaves you feeling like your heart has been stained. You know, sometimes I read Twitter, you know, feeds and it, it's so discouraging Christians are defaming a politician or another Christian leader or something like that. I think this all fits part of the whole. I think when people look at a movement or a ministry and they're conducting themselves with radical honour, not like a cult, but you're speaking beautifully of each other. Speaking beautifully of each other. I think that confounds the world. I think the Lord loves it. I think he loves it. I think he loves it when, you know, you big up a leader or, and a leader's bigging you up and, and you talk with just love and concern and respect for each other. And even people have really wound you up. You speak of him with love, you know. I mean, in my current role in working in Elim, you know, sometimes I'm travelling around and people try and say to you, what, what's this person like? You know, you work with that person. Well, yeah. And I know what they're doing. They want me to go, well, he's a little bit. I'm having it. Because the Spirit of the Lord just flutters away. Flutters away. Just dishonourable, you know. It pleases the Spirit when we act with radical, life-giving honour and respect for one another. It means putting up with each other's fragilities and funny ways, doesn't it? That's just the way God's designed it. I think someone once said much wiser than me that people are like a bunch of porcupines on an iceberg. They huddle together for warmth and then they spear each other in the neck. Then they have to spring apart again. Then they have to come back together again for the warmth. Well, it can be a little bit like that. But wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, you guys are incredible, the, the culture you have here. But let it be even more so. Let it be seen. The way you speak about the things the Lord is doing, the way you speak of one another in leadership, I think that's... I'm not bringing that as rebuke because I don't see the need to do that. I'm not seeing that. I'm saying it's a watchword as you enter into what potentially could be turbulent times as you seek to take more ground. So I'll finish on this note. And I'm famed for not having sad music in the background when I make ministry appeals and for really stringing the last thought together really badly. And when I was at Bible College, I got marked average for public prayer and, and public ministry. Uh, but okay, and everything else. But this is what I want to do. I, I, it's an honesty moment, really. And it may be that some of you just feel like you're flagging. You know, you've been bruised by a few people. I've been bruised by a few people over the last year. It hurts, doesn't it? situations and people can, can bruise you and you felt like quitting. Or well, maybe there's some sin issue that's like a, a tentacle right around your throat and you you want to cut it off and you're not made a stand, you know. Maybe you, you're just at the end of yourself but no one really knows and when I was at the end of myself no one knew that of me 
because I'm a bloke. And I don't want anyone to know that I'm feeling done in. Uh, maybe for some of you, you, you need that touch from the Lord where you say, I will freeze my hand to the sword and see the promises of God fulfilled. It may be for some of you a corporate thing that as a ministry you want to say, let us all freeze our hands to the sword into this next season. Some of you may need to draw a line and you will know what that is. Some of you may have been speaking dishonorably and you think, oh, before the Lord, from this day onwards, only good things will come out of my mouth. Wholesome things that will build up and inspire the people of God. I will now live my life a different way. There's a whole smorgasbord of things there. But days like this and moments like this can be truly sacred before the Lord. I know we, we can dine out on ministry moments, but actually I think there can be sacred moments before the Lord where you stand before him and the Holy Spirit does see it. He sees what's in your heart and he meets with you within that. So as you enter into this new kind of academic season of school's work and new vision, and it'd be good, wouldn't it, for those of you that felt the need to, to just stand before the Lord and say, I freeze my hand, I draw my line, I am a person of honour. In this new season going forward from this day on, I now am driving a stake in the ground. That's it. I'll battle on through now into rest of 015 into 2016. I'm going to do some stuff. So if that's you, I invite you to stand with me and uh, we'll, we'll pray that the Spirit of the Lord just minister. Around the room, we'll just pray for one another and we'll just seek the Lord's grace and, and power and infilling. Thank you, Lord. Father, you know the, the, the individual struggles some of us have had. You know where we're at individually. You know where we're at corporately. You, you see all things. You see our hearts. Father, you know the, the stuff that's going on internally. Many of the people here, you see the discouragements and the excitements. And we pray, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Pray your spirit now. Would you seal this moment? Father, would you place your blessing and protection upon every person that stood? Would you lead them in the way everlasting? Would you protect them by the power of your name? Help them to take ground for you, Father. We pray for the message, Father, this incredible ministry. We pray, Lord God, lead them into the next phase of battle. Looking to you, secured in the victory, Father. Let nothing separate relationships, nothing interfere with unity, nothing shipwreck this ministry, Father. We pray in Jesus' name that far be it from that. Actually, this next season will be a, a more momentous in ground taking than has ever been seen before. New ministries, new ministers. Many more souls won to Christ. The most broken people reached, healed, restored. Guard their hearts, Father. Do something astonishing in our time. Maybe look at the story of the message in a few years' time and think, what was that? That is amazing. How did that happen? 
release all the funds, the finance, the people, everything that's needed, Father. And we bind corporately the work of Satan against his ministry. You will not have any role to play here in shipwrecking this amazing ministry, we pray. Your protection in the thick of the battle. We thank you, Lord, that your word says when we pass through fires, we won't be burned. We pray that it would be so here. In Jesus' name. We pray for Andy leading. General, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Anoint with strength, wisdom, energy. Father, he's a force of nature, Father. We pray more of that, Lord. He'll run up those hills strong and fast. He'll be the inspiration that he is. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.